Uh, there was a time when I, you know, I remember when I first started preaching when I was 16, and my goodness, I used to be so terrified of just getting up on, on stage behind a pulpit, so terrified. Uh, my, literally, my palms would be sweating. Uh, I don't know, when I get nervous, my palms just sweat, and my voice would crack, of course. I was 16. Sometimes it still does. Uh, not for that reason, but sometimes it still does anyway. You know, it's not that I don't get nervous at all anymore. There are occasions where I do feel a little bit nervous, but it's not what it used to be. It was quite terrifying. And I remember a while back reading something about statistics about what people are afraid of. And I think it was actually people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. So some people would rather die than get up here and say a word. Uh, which, which is just astonishing to me. And, and you know, it, it kind of makes sense to a certain extent. When you get up into a, a public speaking position or you're up on stage, you feel exposed, right? And maybe sometimes your anxiety creeps up and you think, oh my goodness, what if I stumble over my words? Which that happens, all right? That happens, and that's happened to me. Thankfully, a few times y'all didn't notice, uh, but it, it, that's just what happens. And so we, we feel exposed, we get scared, we get nervous for that reason. But here's the thing, while in public speaking, even though you get up, you're, you're, you're front and center, you're in front of everybody, that is not close, right? That's not close to what Jesus went through, right? Jesus was front and center. He was raised up front and center in, a, in front of a crowd. He was exposed, but not in the way of public speaking. He was exposed in ways we will never understand, and so sometimes when I reflect on my time and feeling so scared of getting up in front of people and speaking, I think, man, that's nothing, nothing compared to how Jesus was exposed, how he's raised up, gruesome pain, suffering, exposure, the dehumanization of the crowd, treating him as less than a human being, and yet that front and center raised up on a cross that is how God chose to glorify himself. And I know, heard, I know you've heard this many times. That's how God chose to glorify himself. We know God chose to glorify himself through the cross. We get that. But when you really think about that, really? That, that, that glorifies you? Because right, to us, that's, that's not what we would choose. If we're honest, that, that's not what we would choose to glorify ourselves. That's not what we think glory is. Or we think glory is, hey, uh, playing on the professional football field Monday night or Sunday night football, that's glory. Uh, being the president of the United States, that kind of position, that is glory. Right? Being a public speaker with no threat of death, that's glory. Or we don't think of a man on a cross being glory. That, that would never realistically be our plan to glorify ourselves. And yet, that is how God glorifies himself. Verse 23 in chapter 12, as we read last week, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And of course, he's referring to his time on the cross. My hour to be glorified. And today, we're going to look at verses 37 or 27 and following. Not only is Jesus on the cross, not only does that glorify himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God, that glorifies God the Father. So verses 27 and 28, the first half of 28. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And it's not surprising here when Jesus, he has this inner struggle, it seems. Now maybe there's part of him, part of his, his human side that's a little afraid, a little terrified. We know this because he was sweating blood. He was terrified of what was about to happen. And this is a universal human experience, inner struggle. Maybe there's something that we know we need or should do, yet sometimes the things that we know we need or we should do, it's sometimes hard to do. Or maybe you've you got a workout routine, right? Maybe you've got a workout routine, you, you do upper body twice a week, you do lower body twice a week, you do core twice a week, and yet after you're done with work, you get home, you want to recline on the couch or something, and it's a little bit hard to do that. Uh, they're, they're recently, well not recently, this has been a while actually, for several years, Michaela has been trying to get me to do these little stretching routines. And let me tell you, I probably should do them. I am not limber as I used to be. I am quite stiff. Um, though, you know, you, you might be thinking, you're young, what are you talking about? Man, it is not what it used to be. And sometimes she tries to get me those stretching routines, but I'm like, I don't really want to do that. You know, it kind of hurts. Right? There's something I know I should do, but it's hard to do. Right? There's often an inner struggle with us, and obviously this doesn't compare to what Jesus is going through right now. Jesus knowing what his death on the cross will mean. Salvation for us. Knowing that he should do it and that he needs to do it, yet there is an inner struggle. He, he, he's torn, he's terrified, and yet he says, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Now, how does Jesus on the cross glorify God? I think about how does Jesus on the cross glorify God? How does a man suffering and how does a man dying glorify God? Well, for an in-depth answer, you can go to the first several chapters of Romans. That's going to give you an in-depth answer. Uh, but just to give you a few points here, one, Jesus on the cross glorifies God as just. If you think about this, it glorifies God as just, as we know, as is universal amongst mankind. When something has gone wrong, when someone has done wrong, it must be made right. And so because of our sin, because of what we have done wrong against God, Jesus determined to go to the cross to bear our punishment. So Jesus on the cross glorifies God as just, and that way God is just. Jesus on the cross glorifies God as being loving. Right, so not only does Jesus bear our punishment on the cross, Jesus willingly goes to the cross because he loves us. See, that's how, that's how Jesus on the cross glorifies God. Just two straightforward points. That's how Jesus on the cross glorifies God. Jesus himself really glorifies God. We know this. He's very the embodiment of who God is, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that text says, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, that says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very glory of God. And Jesus on the cross glorifies God. The cross was a means to the end of God's glory. Verses 28, the second half of 28, continue on verse 30 in John chapter 12. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now maybe the God, God's voice, the Father's voice being audibly heard, it, it wasn't for them, right? Jesus says that it's not, or it wasn't for him, right? Jesus says, God speaking right now, God the Father speaking is for you. Now maybe this is demonstrating the connection that Jesus has with the Father, right? He wants them to know that he has a bona fide, a bona fide connection to God the Father. And one more thing to touch on here. Notice that this hour that Jesus is coming to, as we saw in verse 23, glorifies himself. And in these verses, it glorifies God the Father. So think about that. Jesus on the cross, one, glorifies the Son. Two, glorifies the Father. Glorifies the Son, glorifies the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I think this is another way in which Jesus is basically communicating, hey, we're one. I, the Son, am God. And so is the Father God. We receive glory as God. Continue on, verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, in a second, we're going to touch on, you know, the ruler of this world being cast out. But for now, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean in verse 32? That says, again, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, a few possibilities. John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 44. This is something that we visited uh, maybe 10 weeks ago. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now raise him up on the last day. So what does Jesus mean back in John chapter 12? Well, a few things here. In verse 44 in John chapter 6, the word there for draw is the same word that's used in John chapter 12. So in John chapter 12, Jesus says, And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So one way I think you could read this is that Jesus is going to draw all people to himself, meaning all people are going to have this opportunity to come to him and to be in relationship, to be reconciled to God. And again, I get that from the same word in John chapter 6 as draw, is the same word used in John chapter 12. So it seems that Jesus makes this connection. He's drawing all people. And another thing to consider Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. So perhaps, perhaps because of the Son and the Father's glorification on the cross, eventually all people will come to acknowledge Him as Lord. Not salvifically, but eventually because of Jesus' glorification, because of the Father's glorification, all will acknowledge Him as Lord. Just a few considerations of what I think he might be uh, pointing to there. Continue on, verse 34, chapter 12. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can he say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now it seems that they're kind of picking up on, on what Jesus says here. They seem to understand that he's talking about his death. Now a few things here. They, they, they think that the Son of Man is going to remain forever and they draw this from some messianic prophecy. Psalm 89 verse 36, that text says, His offering, offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Psalm 110 verses 1 through 4, that text says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb, 
at its womb. <laughs> From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then Daniel chapter 7, of course. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, of course, that title being claimed by Jesus, one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So these are just a few texts. This is not exhausted by any means. But these are a few texts that they understood to be messianic prophecies. And they expect an immediate fulfillment. It's like, yeah, Jesus, we understand the Messiah is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom. Well, what about now? Right, we've been oppressed by people for so long, Jesus. So what about now? Why don't you establish this kingdom right now? And they don't expect, they don't expect what Jesus is telling them. He's going to be lifted up. The Son of Man, your Messiah, is going to die. Now, if we put ourselves in their shoes, would we expect that? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, like removing hindsight... You know, the benefit of hindsight, removing our benefit of having the Scripture right in front of us so we can see the whole picture, removing all of that, if we put ourselves in their shoes, would we really expect that? Absolutely not. Not a single person here. Not me. I would not have expected that. Not even the disciples. His closest friends did not completely understand it immediately. You're going to die the Messiah on a cross, the Messiah suffering, that's how you're going to glorify yourself? Why not raise up an army? We like power. Displays of power, that's glory. Come on, we're Americans, we know this. We like good, strong displays of power. The strongest military in the world. That's glory. That's not glory to Christ. Really, God, the cross glorifies you? We would never have thought that. And one reason why I think that this is evidence and this is, uh, shows you that God is true, that Christ is true, is because of that very reason that he glorifies himself through the cross. Something that we would never have thought of on our own. We wouldn't have thought of the cross as a strategy to glorify somebody, but God did. Because right, only God in his wisdom, only God in his might, only God in his love could take something like that and glorify himself. I mean, if you think about it, we, America, uh, several uh, powerful nations in the world, we think the best way to glorify ourselves is by economic power, control, military power. We think that's how we glorify ourselves. And yet, even with all that, even with all that worldly power, it doesn't come close to the glory that Christ has received. As I mentioned several weeks ago, man, what would it take? What would it take for you to, to receive as much glory as Christ has? Right In the span of three years, Christ came on earth, lived humbly, as a servant, and died a gruesome death, and yet he is the most well-known person on earth. 
even with all military power in the world, even with all uh, economic uh, finances, all, all the GDP of the world, we could not achieve that. I think that absolutely attests to God being true. God being able to take something like a cross and glorify himself where we would never, never, we couldn't make that up. Only God could do that. Verse 35 and 36, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. First off, Jesus goes to the cross. God is glorified. Verses 35 and 36, I think this is what the glorification means for us. His glorification means light. We can walk in the light because Jesus went to the cross. Well, what does that mean? What what does light mean? Without light, we cannot, what? See. Light is clarity. Light is certainty. Light is truth. In contrast, darkness, uncertainty, instability, directionlessness. And the ruler of this world, who is a proponent of darkness, the devil. And what does light do to darkness? cast it out. What did Jesus say that's going to happen to the rule of this world? It's cast out. And I'll keep in mind, Jesus, he's been talking about this hour, of course, the hour of his glorification, the hour of his crucifixion. So as a result of going to the cross, God the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. Their glorification also means the destruction of the devil. And here's the thing about light and darkness. They're not equal opposites. Light and darkness are not equal opposites. Darkness is darkness because an object has tried to step in the way of an object of light or a source of light. Darkness doesn't create. Darkness takes away. Darkness causes uncertainty. With words such as, you won't surely die, Did he really say that? And today, maybe you'll hear words like this, people who try to stir up uncertainty, who try to block the source of light. They say, man, you know, we've made so many scientific advancements. We don't really need God. Through AI, through genetic uh, alteration, we can achieve immortality. We don't really need God. If God is so good, why so much evil? Some people ask that question not because they're actually looking for an answer, but because they want to cause uncertainty. But by walking in the light, we are free from darkness. We have certainty. By believing the light, as verse 36 here says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. You may become, that, there, that word therefore become can also mean born so by believing the light, by walking the light, you may be born sons of light. So we don't just dwell in the light. Right? Because Jesus went to the cross, we have the light. We can dwell in the light, but we don't just dwell in the light. We may be born sons of the light. Now, obviously, if you think about this, the idea of being born sons of light, when we're born of our parents, we have some attributes of our parents. And so if we're born of light, we may emanate light like Christ. Light that dispels the darkness. Light that creates certainty. Light that is truth. 
light that gets rid of everything that, that around you that tries to cause you to, to struggle in your belief. See, God's glory is such a blessing. Jesus went to the cross. He was glorified. God the Father was glorified. Because he was glorified, the devil has been cast out. And we may walk in light, not only walk in it, we may be born, we may emanate light like Christ. Now, if that life, if all I have just described to you is not at all appealing, I'm afraid you're walking in darkness. I pray that you may come to the light. Because if you're not in the light, if you're in darkness, what are you doing? And once you grab a hold of something in the darkness, once you grab a hold of something in the darkness that seems like substance, that's what you're going to cling on to. And look what that has led to. Look at the world. People saying, this is truth. This is my truth. Which makes sense, of course they're going to do that because they're walking in the darkness. They're grabbing a hold of anything that seems like substance, but with the light, you see what's true. You can come, you can be light, you can emanate light as we stand and sing.